If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Jonah. <laughs> this is where we were at this morning in Sunday school. stuff, we're not going to do really long, in-depth looks at any of these because it would take a long time, especially when we get to the major prophets because they're a really, really long book. But what we are going to do is we're going to go in chronological order. So we're not going to go through all the minor prophets into the majors. We're going to go as we get to them in a chronological timeline or as best as scholars can determine. So that's why we're starting with Jonah. Uh, it's the, the first of the books of prophecy that was written according to conservative scholarship. We don't know exactly when it was written. Uh, but conservative scholars, those who trust the Bible, believe that it was the first one written. Uh, Jonah, you look at uh, verse 1, it says he's the son of Amittai. Uh, we don't know much about this guy. Uh, Amittai, his name's mentioned twice, right here and in the book of 1 Kings where it mentions that he's the father of of Jonah. Now, there's a lot of non-biblical writing about him, especially in Jewish tradition. We mentioned in Sunday school, uh, some Jewish traditions have that he was actually murdered uh, by the Assyrians, which is why Jonah did not like the Assyrians. And one that I found really, really interesting, and like, like I said, we can't confirm any of these. We can only go by what Scripture says, but Jewish tradition suggests that he may have been the son of the widow at Zarephath, who Elijah rose from the dead. Now, we can't prove that. That's interesting if it's true, right. but ancient Jewish tradition says that he may have been that son that was brought back from the dead by Elijah back well, in 1 Kings. They, I did, in my study, they didn't say that they knew who wrote the book of Jonah. Jonah didn't write it. They well, that Jonah didn't write it. One of the objections to the book of Jonah being written by Jonah is it's in first person. It's, I mean, it's not in first person. Right. But other prophets do that as well. Okay. Uh, Isaiah often writes from a different viewpoint, right. and he wrote it. Uh, liberal, liberal scholars and scholars that aren't as conservative as we are would suggest that Jonah did not write it. In fact, they would actually suggest this book wasn't even written anywhere near the time it was written. That's what you're going to find with a lot of these books. We honestly don't know when it was written, but when you look at the clues from 1 Kings, it was probably... Most likely, based on the evidence in 1 Kings written during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was the king of the north, northern kingdom of Israel. So you're looking 793 to 753 B.C. Uh, and Jonah, unlike most of the prophets, is not writing to Israel. He's, he's prophesying to the Assyrians. He's prophesying to the enemies. Uh, he would have been a contemporary of the prophet Amos. If that's when he was writing, and Amos was writing to those ten tribes in the north. It's interesting that if you remember when Jesus was preaching, uh, even his own disciples talked about how no prophet could come from Galilee. Uh, which is interesting because Jonah was from a place called Gath Hefer, the tribe of Zebulun, which means he was from Galilee. So even the Pharisees would have been incorrect saying no prophet come from Galilee because Jonah was from there. Most likely the reason he's not thought of in that way is he did not prophesy to Israel. He was prophesying to a group of pagan people. Uh, at the time that Jonah is prophesying, Israel is actually in a, a period, the northern kingdom is actually in a period of peace and prosperity. Uh, the Syrians and, and Assyrians, two different places, two different nations, they're still powerful, but they're not as powerful as they had been 
and they're not as powerful as they're going to be. So the northern borders of Israel have actually extended back to the place where they were with David and Solomon. So Israel is enjoying economic prosperity, but spiritually they're depraved. Uh, things are going good, but spiritually they're in a mess. And that's why God sent all of these prophets speaking to them, letting them know that actually what's going to happen is this group of people, the Assyrians, are going to be used to judge Israel. And they're wicked, evil people. And one of the things, if you set up what's happening in Jonah, Jonah doesn't want to go there because he hates these people. Uh, most Hebrews would have hated these people. They just thought that they were wicked. There was nothing redeeming about them. Uh, if you look at history, there, there are some reasons. Historians look at some things that we know happened in history that may have made the Assyrians open to God speaking to them. Uh, in 765 and later in 759, history records that there were two plagues in this area that affected people on a large scale. And then in 70, 763, there was a solar eclipse in this same general area that would have caused these very superstitious people to be open to messages, especially from a deity, from a god. So that's kind of some historical things that were going on that maybe uh, be one of the reasons why the Assyrians were so open to hearing something because, I mean, plagues, famines, eclipses, if you think in those ancient worlds, those are signs of gods at work, signs of gods typically judging them. Uh, but it is interesting that this group of people that God is speaking to in the book of Jonah is the same group of people that God is going to use to punish Israel. And then God is actually going to rise up prophets later to prophesy against Assyria. Uh, the, the city of Nineveh, a huge city for that time, uh, the inner walls of the city were eight miles long, and the square miles encompassed in the city of Nineveh was probably about 60 square miles, this big place. Uh, as many as 600,000 people living in the city proper is what historians believe. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and like I said, later on, the prophets Nahum and Zephaniah and Isaiah all prophesied against Assyria. So we know that this revival that we see take place at Jonah was short-lived. Uh, they went back to their evil ways. These guys, they were extremely pagan. Uh, I, I believe you mentioned Asher and Ishtar were two of the gods and goddesses they worshipped. But they also worshipped this fish goddess called Manche uh, and this half-man, half-fish god called Dagon because they were situated by water. They made a living of fishing and, and trade, so they would worship these deities associated with water in the ocean. Uh, when you look at scripture, uh, Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah, so you can go back and trace how this city was formed. Uh, they were violent, evil, cruel people. You can look at non-biblical history. These people like to torture people just for the fun of it. Uh, they, were, they were not very nice people. They were wicked. Uh, and we do know that approximately 150 years after this revival, they are going to be destroyed in fulfillment of prophecy by guys like Nahum, Zephaniah, Isaiah. In fact, in 612 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar went in there and wiped them out. Uh, but when you look, I mean, we're not going to read through the whole book. We're going to just hit uh, highlights. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Uh, this is that phrase we see all throughout the prophets. The word of the Lord, word of the Lord coming to a prophet. And he tells him, get up, go to Nineveh, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. We see that phrase in Scripture. Uh, 
Before God destroys the world with the flood, he says, their evil has come up before me. I have noticed their evil. So he tells Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh and preach. And notice Jonah does the exact opposite. He flees to a place called Tarshish. If you look on a map, Tarshish is, they're not 100% sure what it is, but they think it was probably in what's now southern Spain. And Nineveh is in what's now northern Iraq. So he goes just about as far to the west as he can. In that day, uh, with the, the things that he had available to him, he goes just as far in the other direction as he can. And it's really interesting. Now, some of the prophets had issues. Uh, some of the prophets doubted. Uh, some of the prophets had some serious things going on in their life. But Jonah is the only prophet that is recorded as refusing to answer God's call. I mean, we see Elijah having doubts and Isaiah having doubts. Elijah just flat out says, I'm not going to do it. And he gets on a boat and he goes as far to the west as he can. He's trying to get as far away from God as he can. And it's interesting, there's these series of miracles throughout the book of Jonah. Just right here in the first chapter, he thinks he's running from the Lord's presence. He thinks he can run away from God. And scripture makes it very clear that no matter where you go, there God is. Uh, but God causes this great wind to stir up the ocean. It threatens to break the ship up uh, there in verse 4. And it's interesting. These sailors were Phoenicians who were also pagan people. They also worshipped the gods of the sun, the gods of the ocean. But they are more righteous in this situation. They are more faithful than Jonah. Look what happens here in verse 5. As this storm is going on, it says, The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Then they started to throw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. They're pagans, but what are they doing? They're praying to their gods. They're religious. Now, they're praying to false gods, but they're spiritual. They see that they're in a mess, and they're like, Well, the best thing we can do is talk to God, or what they thought was God. And Hannah, but what is Jonah doing at this time? He's sleeping in the lowest part. He's gone down as far deep in the boat as he can to get away from everybody. And he's asleep. And the captain comes up and says, get up. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Get up. He's like, get, go ahead. Have you ever been in a rough sea? It will not dry out. Yeah. It, it puts you to sleep until you're rocking the land. So, I mean, I've been through a hurricane before on a ship. And it, one thing does it. it, it, it and another thing, too, he was at the lowest part of the ship. Yeah. He's as deep, he, he is away from Not only is he trying to run away from God, he's avoiding all these people. He doesn't want anything to do with them because they're pagans too. And he's avoiding them. And the captain says, if you believe in a God, whatever your God is, get up and pray to your God because we're going to die. We're all going to die here. He's like, call out to your God and maybe your God will hear us because ours sure aren't doing it. And maybe we won't die. And the sailors get all together, and they do what pagan people, superstition people do. So, we'll cast lots. We'll throw dice is basically what they're doing. He's like, and whoever they fall on, that's who caused this. We'll figure out who caused this mess. Mm -hmm. And they throw it out. And I believe God directed this, even though these are pagans. God threw the lot to Jonah because this is Jonah's fault. And he just, Jonah is so indifferent. And it falls to Jonah, and they said, why is this happening? Somebody's God has pointed you out. What is going on? 
Where are you from? What is your bit? I mean, they got all kinds of questions. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. And he's like, well, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and dry land. And they're terrified. It's not that they don't believe in the God of the Bible, but to him, to them, he's just another God. But this is the God of creation, not just the ocean, not just the sun. This is the God that controls everything, and he's doing this to us. We're going to die. And it actually says that Jonah had told them he was running away from this God, and this God is angry with him and causing all these problems. Verse 10, what have you done? Are you crazy? What have you brought upon us? And they said, what should we do? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Once again, he's, he's a little indifferent. He, maybe even suicidal at this point because he's just so overcome. And these pagans don't want to do it. They're like, that's not right. So you, you see these pagans worshiping other gods and they have a stronger moral backbone at this point than Jonah does. And Jonah assures him, no, this is my fault. Throw me into the ocean, and it's all on me. It has nothing to do with you. And they, they call out to Yahweh. And notice what it says in verse 4. Please, Yahweh. You notice that that Lord or God is all capital. They're calling on Yahweh. Don't let us die because of him. Don't kill us because of him. If he's innocent, we're just doing what he told us to. But if he's guilty, spare us. And they throw him into the ocean. What happens? God answers their prayers. God answers the prayers of these pagans. Because they're sincere. And then you see this other miracle. The ocean stops. The wind stops. And then a third miracle says God appointed or prepared a great fish. It's not the word for whale. There is a word in Hebrew for whale. Uh, it's big fish. And you mentioned whale sharks. They're, they're, they're a huge fish. Uh, and there are contemporary stories. People say, well, that couldn't happen there. There are stories of sailors in the Mediterranean Ocean and the Indian Ocean being swallowed by big fish and being taken out alive. Uh, this is, a lot of people say this is an allegory. This didn't really happen. This, Jonah was thrown into the water and swallowed by a big fish. Well, it's such an impressive thing with this that even the Islamic Quran oh, yeah. and other books have recorded this thing with the fish in yep. Jonah. He actually survived three days inside of this fish. So that's chapter one. Jonah wants his own way. Jonah's running from God's will is basically what chapter one is about. And then Jonah's inside the belly of this fish and he's praying. And it actually compares it to being in the grave. Jesus is later going to use the sign of Jonah about being in the grave. And Jonah cries out. <laughs> you ever got in such a mess where you, you have no choice but to go, oh, I guess I messed up. Jonah's at that point, he's like, well, I guess I messed up. And I imagine he probably thought he was going to die there. He says, I called out to Yahweh in my distress. This is verse 2. And he answered, I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. That's the word for the grave. Jonah thinks he's a goner. He's like, well, I better get straight with God because God's punishing me. God's messed. Uh, I've messed up. Verse 4, he's like, you've banished me from your sight. I was a prophet. You spoke to me. I ignored you. I ran away, and this is what I get. I'm sinking to the depths of the ocean, and I'm just going to die here. And this is the end of me. But notice what he says. He's still worshiping. Verse 7, as my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. 
and my prayer came to you. So he's calling out desperately, I might add, Lord, if, if you're listening, just one more time, I call out to you. And look at verse 10, you have yet another miracle. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. And then chapter 3, notice what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. It's the same message. Notice it's the exact same thing. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach the message, I tell you. What did Jonah do this time? He got up and went to Nineveh. <laughs> he got up and went. Uh, he's not real happy about it, but he gets up and he goes. It says that Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. I've already mentioned the inner, inner walls were eight miles long, 60 square miles if you walk from one, if you just walk the perimeter and walked all inside. I mean, this is a huge place, over half a million people. So Jonah sets out on the first day. He's walking, and notice the message. And you mentioned hundred. You mentioned forty. Yeah, the number the number forty is used over one hundred forty six times in the Old Testament, and it's usually connected with periods of testing, or or punishment, or preparing someone. And then you see a lot of forties even in the ministries of Jesus. Forty days in the wilderness. Forty days from the resurrection to the ascension. That number forty is just one you see over. Moses was. Egypt for 40 years. He was out of Egypt for 40 years. He was on Sinai for 40 days. The first time he was on Sinai for 40 days. The second time, it's just one of those numbers. Look at the message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And it's amazing. To me, I consider this a miracle as well. The people of Nineveh, these wicked, evil, violent people who worship a half man, half fish, just soon kill you and look at you. And then when they would kill you, they would stick you on sticks and hang you outside and just let you rot in the sun. That's these people. They hear this message and they believe God. They proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth, which was an ancient way of showing that you were in mourning, especially mourning for your sin. And notice, from the greatest of them, because we see the king of Nineveh to the very least, every person in this city Here's the message. They take heart and they repent. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, and issued a decree. And he's like everybody. No animal, no person, nothing. No one's going to eat. We're all going to fast before this God. Everybody must be covered in sackcloth. Everyone must call out earnestly to God. We must turn from our evil ways and from our wrongdoings. And then look at verse 9. This is interesting too. He's not even certain it's going to work. He said, perhaps, who knows, maybe this God will hear us and he'll change his mind. He's not even sure it's going to work, but he's willing to do whatever he can because he's heard the message of God. And it says, God saw their actions. They turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster he threatened them with. That's the same imagery when, when Abraham's arguing about, and, and Lot's arguing about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, will you relent if this many people? Remember how many people it was God agreed not to destroy Sodom over? Ten. Ten. This is a city of almost half a million. 
And God sees that it's true repentance. It's not putting on airs. It's not fake. He sees that they are serious. And he did not destroy them. And if the book of Jonah ended right there, this is one of the greatest things that has ever happened in the history of the world. If we could just stop it right there, it's like, that's amazing. Oh, yeah, they, were, they, they turned back. Didn't even take 200 years. 150 years, they're right back to it. Uh, and God judges them, too. But he's preparing them here to punish Israel. And then they got a little cocky about it, and God had to come back and say, hold on just a second. You're not special either. The Babylonians destroyed the Assyrians. Oh, yeah. Well, the Assyrians didn't cease to exist. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Yeah. The Assyrians came in and, and started taking people off from the northern kingdom. That was Jeremiah. Yeah. But the, but the Babylonians and the Babylonians came in and wiped out the Assyrians. Destroyed Nineveh. And, and, and if you go back and read Nahum and Zephaniah, there's large sections of Isaiah talking about the Assyrians. But once again, that's 150, 200 years after this has happened. So they've, they've a whole two or three generations have died off, and they've forgotten all about this. That was the Persians. Persians. Yeah, you have three different, you have the Assyrians here. And then the Babylon and God uses them to judge the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians come in to destroy the Assyrians, and Babylon is who destroys Jerusalem and takes them off into captivity. And while they're in captivity, the Persians come in and wipe them out, and it's King Cyrus of Persia that sends them back. So you have those three groups of people: the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, which was Nebuchadnezzar, and then the Persians. Yeah. Unfortunately, the book of Jonah doesn't end at chapter 3. <laughs> uh, and this is where it gets really interesting. So far, if you track what's happened, God, uh, Jonah's running from God's will. He wants his own way. He submits to God's will. Mind you, God has to put him in the belly of a fish, but he submits to God's will and decides, I think maybe I ought to do what God told me to. <laughs> then he fulfills God's will by going and preaching to Nineveh. And it's one of the greatest revivals recorded in Scripture. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. I'm going to tell you, if I were to go preach in Elizabeth City, and there's nowhere near half a million people, if I went and walked through Elizabeth City and preached and the entire city repented, I'd be happy. I'd be tickled. Any preacher would be. Jonah's displeased and he's, he gets mad at God. He prayed to Yahweh. Isn't this what I said was going to happen? I told you this was going to happen. This is why I didn't want to go. When I was still at home and you told me to go here, this is why I didn't want to go. That's why I fled in the first place. Why? Look at verse the second part of verse 2. I knew, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, Abounding in faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster. That's why I didn't want to go because I knew if I preached to them about you and they heard, you would save them. And I did not want them saved. 
I wanted them to die. So now, Lord, since you've saved them, just kill me. Yeah, that's what he says. It's better for me to die. Just kill me. And then it gets even more interesting. God says, is it right for you to be angry? Who do you think you are? It's a lot like the conversation he has at the end of Job. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to be angry? And Jonah goes and sits on the cliff and he overlooks the city. And he's just sitting there. I don't know if you've ever seen the Veggie Tales about this. It's, it's funny. He's just sitting there waiting for God to strike him down. He's just sitting there watching, waiting. He's like, all right, go ahead, kill him. And nothing happens. He sees them worshiping. He sees the, the, the revival. And he just sits there and he makes them a little thing. He's in the shade. And then God causes this little plant to grow. Which this in itself isn't a miracle because I'm trying to make stuff grow in my front yard and it don't it don't grow up fast enough for me to sit under and get shade. But this is a miraculous thing. God giving grace to Noah. I mean not Noah, to Jonah. Alright, you're sitting out here pouting. Let me give you some shade so you don't burn up in the sun here. And those Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate that. But he's still sitting there waiting for God to strike down this city. Yeah, he's still pouting. He's still pouting. And, and mad at God. And then it says, when dawn came the next day, God appointed the worm that attacked the plant and it withered and died. His, his comfort was just temporary. And God's... Then God sends this scorching east wind. The sun's beating down on Jonah's head so much he almost faints. And he's like, there he goes. Just kill me. It'd be better if I was dead. Just kill me, God. And then God said, remember, he already asked me, is it right for you to be angry that I spared Nineveh? He's like, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes. That's not the answer. That's not the right answer. Yes, of course it is. I'm angry enough to die. I mean, he's, he's acting like a three-year-old here. He's just pouting. That's all it is, is he's pouting. He's just audacious enough to pout to God Almighty. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, and you didn't do anything. You didn't plant it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up in the night and died in the night. had nothing to do with you. He's like, can't I, creator God, can't I care about the city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left? That's a fancy way of saying 120,000 young ones. So there's 120,000 youngins there. That's how half a million people. He's like, and that's not just, that's not even counting the animals and the flocks. And then Jonah, actually it doesn't say what Jonah does. It would have been nice if yeah. it said, and Jonah said, you're right, Lord. You're right, I'm being a baby. But it stops there. And it's one of the weird, I mean, if this was a TV show, this is the one you're sitting there going, really, that's the way this ends? It's like a really good show that gets canceled before the next season. You're like, that's it? Jonah's sitting there pouting, and God says, you big baby, and whoop, that's it. You don't get anything else. Except we do hear about Jonah again. In Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees are demanding that Jesus give them a sign. It's interesting. 
The only minor prophet, Jesus mentions Isaiah and Jeremiah. The only one of the 12 minor prophets that Jesus mentions is Jonah. The only minor prophet that Jesus compares himself to is Jonah. And for those that want to say, well, it's an allegory, it's a fairy tale, Jesus refers to Jonah as a real person. Just like he referred to Adam and Eve as real people. Jonah is a real individual. And in Matthew 12, it starts in verse 38, the scribes and Pharisees are demanding that Jesus prove that he is Messiah. They want a sign. He's like, you're going to show us. And Jesus, he says, you evil and adulterous generation. That's who demands signs. He's like, the only sign you're going to get. Remember in our sermon this morning in Mark, he's like, you're not going to get anything. I'm not going to perform miracles and do a magic show for you. And here he says, the only sign you will get is what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, and even Jonah, while he was there, called it Sheol, he called it the grave, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days, three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at this judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look something greater than Solomon is here in light of the New Testament Jonah is a picture of the Israel he's a picture of Old Testament Israel he was chosen by God to be God's witness and he rebelled against God just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years Jonah was in the belly of this fish 40 days, and then God miraculously preserved him just like he preserved Israel. And Jonah finally preached the message God sent him. And by the time you get to the remnant coming back from Babylon, they were finally repenting and preaching what God wanted them to do. The ultimate application, I think, that applies to us, because if you're going to look at these books and you don't realize what it means to us, you're wasting your time. The ultimate application is that God's love and mercy extends to every single soul on this planet, whether we like them or not. We can't let our personal baggage, our personal biases, our personal prejudices get in the way. We were all created in the image of God. John 3.16 said, God loved the world, not just part of the world, the entire world. If Jesus can look at the people we think are the absolute worst, and let's just be honest, we all do that. And let's just be honest, the Ninevites were evil people. It's not like they were good people and misunderstood. They were wicked. If Jesus can look at the worst that society has to offer and says, I'm still going to die for you. Now, that person still has to make a choice. Then what gives us the right? That's convicting. That convicts me. Because there are people I don't like. Now, I'm not sitting on a cliff hoping that God strikes them down, but I don't care if nothing good happens to them. Jesus loved everybody. He still loves Everybody. And well, God's grace and mercy is for who? Everybody. Everybody. When he spoke this in 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this generation and condemn it. 
they repeat they repent it. Uh, that's a that's 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 striking really but hard. And, and keep in mind that they did return back to their oh, yeah. their ways and God <clears throat> judged them and they were ultimately right punished for their sins. But for everybody. Nobody is outside the mm-hmm. grace of God. We might think they are. They might be outside our grace, but they're not outside the grace of God. That's why when Jesus says, you must forgive people and must show grace, that's terrifying. Because there's people out there that me personally, I don't like. And I don't think about them too terribly much. But that's not my choice. I hope you all got something out of that. That's the way we're going to kind of do these, going through these books. Uh, Some of these long ones, like Isaiah, we'll break it up in sections and go through it. But... uh, Every time I go through the book of Jonah, it convicts me. Oh, yeah. Because of the message that God loves everybody, whether I like it or not. Well, just like my Sunday school talks about the mm-hmm. promise of all nations being blessed. Yep. And we, we lose that. We, we think we're the only ones that can be blessed. 